Today we'll be discussing roast comedy as well as masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy to entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and questions me on that topic. Today, we'll be speaking about mask use during COVID. But coming up first, we'll delve into the history of roast comedy. Before we get to that, though, Ali, I heard some interesting news recently that you were nominated for a Canadian Screen Actors Award, the name of which I may be getting incorrect. <laughs> Screen Actors Guild. It's nice of you to almost know what I was nominated for. It feels like it's a compliment, but what it is, it's a, the Academy, Canadian Screen Academy, and I was nominated for a Canadian Screen Award, Award. for co-hosting an event, huh? which uh, puts a little feather in our cap because you got a, a Canadian Screen Award nominated co-host here, potentially. No, not potentially. The nomination is for real. The winner is the potential. And it's for Canada Film Day, which was a four-hour event that I co-hosted uh, last spring. It's a lot of fun. Was it broadcast on television? YouTube. It's web. It was a web broadcast. Oh, okay. A lot of people using the web. Don't uh, don't turn your nose That's up to the web. exactly the same as any other award. I'm not sure why you'd feel upset or embarrassed about that. No, no, no. It was good. It was right when the pandemic hit. It was in April. So oh, right. there was a, like, this would have been a very large production otherwise. So we had to go to the web, but in real time, we were interviewing with Ethan Hawke and Sandra Oh, she was in Vancouver. So people in different time zones in different countries and doing it live. And so we, we pulled off and really the, the credit goes to Jack Bloom who envisioned this and then to the tech team. Because they really pulled off something special. This was April. I mean, I mean pandemic had just hit yeah. a month prior. And so that use of technology was pretty amazing to make a pretty seamless show. Everybody was on, no dropped calls, no bad Zoom connections. I don't even know how we did it. It's unbelievable. Well, when do we hear about these awards, whether you have won or not? Yeah, I believe May 20th. Okay. Don't quote me on that. It's in May. We'll talk about it again. But it's in, in later in May, the winners will be announced. It's a thrill just to be nominated. Is that what they say? Yeah, that's what some say. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's what I'm going to say because it's true. That's all I need. Well, I'm hoping your hosting gig that you did uh, last year that you were nominated for wasn't, as they say, uh, controversial or blue as some of the roast comedy that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> Indeed, it was not. So why don't we get into this first topic, which is roast comedy. Now, we're not going to be roasting anybody or talking about it, but it seems to me it was – when I think about roast comedy, probably some time ago, I think about Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., the Rat Pack. I think about that yeah. um, kind of group. And then I feel like I didn't really hear about it too much. And then there's been the resurgence with these Comedy Central roasts over the past – 10 to 15 years or so. And we've seen that over time. So maybe let's talk a bit about where does this come from? What's the history of roast comedy? Well, Asif, I must say, I'm very surprised that you neglected to mention the 1949 roast of vaudeville actor and singer Maurice Chevalier. 
I'd be, it would have blown my mind if you knew anything about that. I didn't know about that. But just to tell you that 1949, the Friars Club, Hmm. which started in 1904, started doing, it was called the Press Agents Association, and they would do this tradition of roasting one member a year. And it started in 1949 with somebody that you and I both don't know. I wouldn't call us, uh, either of us, vaudeville experts, but they weren't televised in your defense, Asif, until the 60s. And then that's when you would have heard more about them. And then the 70s is when the Dean Martin celebrity roast became a thing on NBC. And it was it was a pretty, like, biting sort of... Uh, I mean, these guys, they didn't spare anybody's feelings, but they were very clear on one thing, which is they only roast the ones they love. Mm-hmm. And that is a marked difference between then and now. It was this sort of rat pack of legends, Bob Hope, Groucho Marx, Buddy Hackett. People probably have to look up who they are. And then eventually Don Rickles, Johnny Carson, Jack Benny, these people became mainstays on all the dioceses, mostly comedians, but sometimes also actors. Humphrey Bogart, Harry Belafonte were roasted. Roasting the ones they loved, they did seem to have a, a deep respect for the people that they were roasting. That eventually went away, you know, as people couldn't, I guess people's tolerance for hearing people get skewered became a little lower. I think people, some people might say that, you know, political correctness came along and then the roast didn't, didn't sort of resonate the same way. But there is that saying that with every action, there is an equal and positive reaction. Right. And I think that's what accounts for the roasts coming back. And they've come back with a vengeance. You know, many of them televised, lots not televised, but they they've come back. Now, the love is not always there. And I'll talk more about that in a little while. But, you know, sometimes these days you see roasters just like, first of all, what am I doing here? And also, what are you doing here? What have you done to deserve to be roast? So it's a it's a different sentiment. But the roasting the actual skewering of human beings and the seeming negligence of their feelings and and respect for them does continue to this day in, in a big way. And it is, I think it is a reaction to political correctness. People are like, no, screw that. I want a place, another type of safe space where we can really go in on people and say whatever it is we please. And it's all permitted. And when I watch the roasts that are on more recently, as we said, the Comedy Central roast, your jaw almost drops sometimes with some of the comments that the comedians are making towards the person. But my understanding was, in fact, even in the past, even with like the Dean Martin roast and the earlier roast in the 40s and 50s, that still happened. Like they would still use this kind of incredibly crass language and stuff like that, but it wasn't taped or televised, as you said. So it was really just for the people in the room. So that I find very interesting. Like we think this is kind of a new, a new thing, but really it's not. It's just maybe the format has switched slightly with a television, internet, et cetera. Exactly. And that does, as soon as you're on television, legal has to be involved and many layers of production have to be involved. So you can't really, I mean, you got to wonder about things that have been said that were like, no, I'm sorry, you just cannot say that because what we do here is pretty rough to begin with. Now, that said, it's cable. It's Comedy Central or it's on HBO, so they get away with a lot more. But these places, you know, these networks still have legal departments. They still have to worry about getting sued and they still have to worry about the very litigious nature of the United States. But, But yeah, it is that place. It's like... You are about to watch a roast, so be very prepared. And another place where 
roasts have become incredibly successful is actually in India. Okay. Now, if anybody listening is of South Asian background and would like to watch them, and I say South Asian background particularly because I don't even fully understand what's happening at these roasts because sometimes they're roasting Bollywood actors. And I'll get half the jokes. They're all in English, but sometimes they will use Hindi words and they're terms that are very inside that I don't understand. And sometimes they reference other actors and actresses and they reference, you know, people who you've allegedly had to, let's say, sleep with to get to the top and that kind of stuff. So I don't always get those jokes, but they're pretty vicious. So it's even like people just kind of get it. They're like, you sure you want your mother to be in the front row? You sure your mother, you want your mother to attend at all? Like we are roasting you. Yep. She's got to be there. And so people just, they understand. And the people I feel sorry for are the people who tune into a roast thinking like, ah, comedy. It's something else. It is a completely different beast and you have to sort of be prepared for what's about to happen. And if you're not... You know, people have to understand not everything is for everyone and roasts are certainly not for everybody. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's this idea of this last bastion of the politically incorrect venue. It's interesting you say that about India. In India, we know that even in movies, showing two people kiss is a huge deal and a huge issue. And in most mainstream Bollywood movies, it was quite rare to see that. In art house movies, it's become more more prevalent. That's how kind of prudish you could say that a lot of the sensibilities were there. Right until 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right until 20 years ago, it was dancing around trees was the uh, the seduction. That was the foreplay, right? We all, people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, we always joke about that we all know that dance. Look at one side of the tree, look from the other side of the tree. So do you think that this is like, again, like you said, this is swinging the other way, like using India as an example of how they're swinging the other way towards this political incorrectness for these roasts? I think that's part of it. I also think that people want to also have a place where they can speak the way they just speak with each other on a you know, behind closed doors. And as you said, this was behind closed doors for many years, and now it's being televised. And I think society at large has a, a larger acceptance for us to say things that we could never say in public, or I wouldn't say in public, we couldn't say on television. Look, some of the stuff that I see on roasts is pretty horrific, but I also watch roasts and I also feel like, wow, that was uh, cathartic at some level, even just to watch it. Have you done a roast for anyone? And I'm just wondering, is is coming up with material difficult? And are you worried about offending the person you're roasting? I don't worry about that at all. I've done a few roasts. One of them is on YouTube. It was India versus Pakistan. I have a friend, Danish in Toronto, who has made quite a name for himself as a producer of roast shows. And it started with Neighborhood Battles of, you know, sort of warring neighborhoods in the Toronto area. And he grew it and grew it and grew it where he took it to Japan. He took it to Thailand and oh, wow. it was, you know, warring neighborhoods and it's all in good fun. And every single person understands what a roast battle is. And, and you shouldn't be on that bill if you don't understand that you better be able to take it as well as you can dish it. And if you can't dish it out that well, you're not in the right place. So I've done one roast where I really benefited because people were like, oh, he's, a, he's a wholesome father of four. He's a CBC personality. Uh, it's hard to roast him. 
And then I came out and I really ruined some people's day with, with my roasting. They had underestimated what I was all about. And then they were very upset that they couldn't go back and rewrite their jokes. I'm like, I want another crack at Hassan. Sorry, bud. You screwed up. So I, you know, have that little element of like wholesome dad coming. But as you know, uh, as a friend of mine, uh, since my youth, nothing really wholesome going on here. <laughs> And so a roast is, that's what I mean by it's cathartic. I can get out some stuff that I, I think and don't usually say. And then this, this roast India versus Pakistan on YouTube has gotten some, some real traction. Apparently I'm going to see some, some money from it, but it's like, yeah, you do worry that you're going to have people watching. I definitely don't worry about it offending the person I'm roasting because they knew exactly what they were getting into. But you do worry that people are going to be like, what is this? Why is this person saying this about India? You know, people get very, very patriotic about their nation, about their mother country, about the country of their parents. But so far, it's been okay. You know, I don't really read YouTube comments anyway, but apparently, based on what people are telling me, it did quite well. So it's all fine. Is your the way you write jokes for a roast is it a different way than you do it for regular comedy, like your regular stand-up, or is it kind of the same process? Oh, it's completely different. It's completely different. It's looking at the person you're roasting, and in this case, the, the most recent case, looking at the country they're from and really picking apart issues that you can no, – not picking apart – Picking away at sort of the news, picking away at like current events, picking away at stuff that you can really highlight and make a lot of fun of. And if you can do it in a way that also makes fun of the person you're roasting, that's an ideal situation. Roasting feels very mean-spirited and my comedy, not as mean-spirited. A little bit, you know, my children would say, but not so bad. So that's actually... Very interesting. That's what I was going to ask you about. I agree with you. Roasts are funny, and I agree with you that they are often mean-spirited. So when you're the roast-e, I guess, the person who's being roasted, does that help them? Let's just stick with celebrities. I don't really know how I'd conceptualize that for a country like India or Pakistan, but does it help those celebrities or does it hurt them? This is the, I would say, the unfortunate part of today's roast that sometimes they are sort of a PR move. Mm -hmm. And when you watch it on the surface, sometimes you're like, this cannot be a PR move. This cannot help. This person who has been humiliated and mocked and verbally abused for the better part of an hour, how are they coming out of this in a better place? But in fact, I'll give you the best example, which is Justin Bieber. Mm -hmm. Justin Bieber, we may not remember 2015, Justin Bieber was shenanigans after shenanigans, making him look bad on a constant base. I'm punching reporters, saying awful things. He, he was really down in the dumps and he was the subject already of much humiliation. He was roasted. He was the quote unquote guest of honor and he was roasted. I think it was 2015 and he came out of it bigger and better than he went into it. And a very interesting thing that really illustrates the fact that it was sort of a PR move. First of all, he, he did, he did well, he took his lumps and then he also was gracious about it and also gave back some lumps. But this is a very interesting thing. There was only one joke that we know about that was actually canceled from the joke. I'm sure there was a few, but the one that we know about that was actually removed and not aired was the following joke. It was Hannibal Burris. And Hannibal Burris said, actually, you should thank me for participating in this extremely transparent attempt to be more likable <laughs> in the public eye. And I hope it doesn't work. 
Now, compared to the other jokes that were made against Justin Bieber, that seems pretty light. But in fact, that is so right down the line, skewering not only Justin, but also the PR move and also what Comedy Central is doing that they were like, well, you're kind of pulling back the curtain here. And so it just shows that it was a, it was an orchestrated PR move. So that's an unfortunate part of roasts, but but it doesn't take away the fun of what's happening during the roast. But yeah, often people come out of it in a better place. Sometimes somebody's on a roast and it just it doesn't make sense from minute one till the end of the roast. Exhibit A and Coulter. Ann Coulter was on the roast. She just got ruined over and over again. She's a horrific human being. Yeah, and she's kind of ruined already. She's ruined already, and this just made her worse, and it didn't do one thing. The needle was not moved for Ann Coulter. So sometimes you go, what is this person doing here? But Justin Stewart, Justin Bieber, Justin Stewart, Justin Bieber is definitely an example of somebody who had helped, and it resuscitated his failing career. And one last thing, and I don't know if if you know the answer to this, but on these Comedy Central roasts, which we've been talking about a lot, I've got to believe that there's a team of writers coming up with material, not necessarily for the comedians who are on there, but for like the other celebrities and the roastee. I don't know if you know firsthand if that's the case or not, but that's what I, I feel. Oh, 100%. In fact, I met a guy. Is it Jesse James? I'm blanking on his name. Is Jesse something? That is a cowboy. But, that is a cowboy. Yeah. It might be his real name as well. Oh. Anyway, Jesse something. I can't remember. I performed with him at the Comedy Works a decade ago. So this cowboy comedian was telling you. Cowboy comedian. One of his credits is writer for Comedy Central Roast. Like he's very clear about that. And I wouldn't go so far as to ask him, who have you written for? Or which jokes did you write? But if you ever heard him on a podcast, he would probably be very frank about like when we wrote this joke in the room, we weren't sure if this person would deliver it and this and that. But yeah, it's it's no different from any other show where celebrities who aren't used to writing jokes have to tell jokes. So yeah, there are definitely writers and they do quite a job. They're doing God's work. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> not sure about that either. It just felt like the right thing to say. All right, Asif, you are in a unique position where you can actually understand things you read about medicine, and you also have been wearing masks as a hospital practitioner of medicine for a long time, and you're around masks all the time, so I wanted to ask you about this. Now, the one thing I know about masks is it's probably going to help my six-year-old grow a very lush mustache in the next year or so. Really lush growing conditions underneath there. But other, besides that, I want to know about masks. And I, I'd love for you to tell me the history of the mask. And then I've got, uh, I've got a bunch of questions that I want to ask. You better have the answers, bud. Well, first of all, I'm not quite sure about the mask creating that vegetation of a mustache. That I think you're pretty <laughs> wrong about that. Anecdotal. Anecdotal. Okay. Seeing it happen in the house. Maybe his mustache was going to come in anyway. Could be unrelated as usual, but okay. So when we talk about masks and I mean, we've used mass medicine for a long time, but let's talk about masks for preventing infectious disease. And you may have seen recently on, you know, those Google doodles that come up, they often have like a celebration of a specific day or a person. Sure. They talked about Wu Liente, who was an epidemiologist back in China in the early part of the 20th century. He was born in Malaysia 
moved to China. And he pioneered the use of face masks in epidemics. So we're talking over a hundred years ago, he had pioneered this. He found that there was a deadly disease outbreak in northeastern China, and it was affecting marmot trappers and fur traders. And at first they thought, oh, it's it's the rodents, right? The marmots of the rodent family. And they thought it was it was these animals that were passing it around because it was actually the bubonic plague. That was actually what he had uncovered, what was going on. He did some tests and realized that. But he figured out that it was actually respiratory droplets. And again, if I was talking to you two years ago, you'd be like, what are you talking about respiratory droplets? Now everybody knows what I'm talking about. They're all the rage. <laughs> that's right. Over the past year or so. So he said, that's actually the cause. So he said, we should produce masks. And he create a way to produce masks with gauze and other materials. And he encouraged the healthcare workers in China to use them. And so it goes that there was a French doctor who was also working in China at the time. And there are some reports that he insinuated that Asian doctors couldn't be right about something like this. He's coming from Europe. So that's insinuated. And he refused to wear a mask. And you could probably guess what happened to him. He got infected with the bubonic plague and died. Swift justice, gosh. And historians and medical reporters are bringing up the story of Wu Lintei again now for many reasons. First of all, mask use in an epidemic. But secondly, last year in around March or April, Europe and North America were saying, oh, what are we, this is new. We haven't experienced this before. We have no data. We have no data. The SARS-CoV-19 had been going on for several months in Asian countries. Some of them were able actually con to control it or to get things under reasonable control. And here we have doctors in, in North America and Europe saying, oh, I don't know. I, we have no data. We don't know who to, who to ask about this. There is a, t a tinge of Westernism and racism in this. It's more than a tinge, I believe. I, I think you wanted to use the word tinge, and I, it was good usage of the word, but I don't know if it's exactly the right word. I think there's enough discrimination there that you could probably have a full episode on. And not only does it not work, but there were people coming out and saying that it could harm as well, right? Right. Was there any scientific, I know you're a huge nerd and love the science. So was there evidence that it could be harmful in any way, mask wearing? I'm not sure loving science makes you a nerd, but anyway. Huge. Yes. So this happened, right? And we remember this, oh, masks, I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to have lots of CO2, carbon dioxide retention. It's going to cause headaches and, and dizziness and things like that. And we know that's not true, right? Because doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals wear masks every day, even before the pandemic. You and I have friends who are neurosurgeons. Neurosurgeons probably do the longest surgeries out of everybody. And in a neurosurgical OR, it's not just the, the it's not just the doctors, it's their assistants, it's the operating room nurses all wearing masks. They do surgeries without stopping sometimes for 15, 16 hours straight. Sure. Sure. They're fine. They're not collapsing because of carbon dioxide poisoning, which is not really a thing. So <laughs> this is really overblown. In fact, I will tell you something controversial. There is no medical contraindication, contraindication meaning reason to not wear a mask. There's no medical reason to not wear a mask. A little bit of a double negative there, mm -hmm. but I get it. I actually <laughs> understand that. So scientific evidence says that masks work. 
plain and simple. Right. And, you know, some people are also worried about something called the Peltzman effect, which is like you do one safety measure. So the example is wearing a car seatbelt, but then people speed more because they feel more comfortable. So they thought people wearing masks would make people not socially distanced and things like that. And, and that mm. probably didn't happen. And so masks definitely work. And maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But I, I do appreciate what you're talking about, like your concern. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there were lots of mixed messages. Would you agree? I would. I mean, it's not a it's not a concern to me. I believed what I was told. My confusion was more on hearing that masks are a one way product, right? So it was really about it's not about you not getting infected. It's that you wear a mask so that others don't get affected. And I was like, well, that's that's nice. But could I also not be selfless and wear something that? protects me as well? Well, this is what I meant about the mixed messaging. I think it was a bit of an issue at the beginning. So really, some of that, again, when you think about it, it was a year ago, really, we were having these conversations and we think about what we heard. So some people saying, yeah, you got to wear a mask and other people saying, you don't, you know, you could self-contaminate because your hands would be covered in COVID and you're adjusting your mask and things like that. It's probably not true. The real reason, which I think most people accept now the real reason mask use was discouraged at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic was simply a supply issue. There was not enough masks for healthcare workers. Hospitals- oh, juicy story, juicy story. Hospitals were rationing them. And you talk about places that were hard hit, Italy, New York City, and they were worried that if the general public was buying these masks, and that's why you remember when we heard from the CDC and other organizations, cloth masks, right? That was the first thing you were told. No one told you to go out and buy a surgical grade mask. Hmm. So that was really the reason. And again, COVID is tough because people want answers right now, but things are uncertain. In a year hindsight, we can say this is probably the reason why. But then people thought about how we can protect people. And you're right about protecting others. When we talk about those doctors in surgery and nurses who are wearing a mask, they're not wearing a mask because they're worried about, you know, germs from the patient coming and affecting them. They don't want their germs to go into the open wound cavity of a surgical patient. They're trying to protect that patient. But now several studies have shown that good masks will also prevent you from getting sick. So it is a now it's a double messaging. Again, okay. the early messaging was prevention of helping others, but it does also reduce your infection as well. I think one of the other things to consider is that masks aren't the be all and end all, right? As we know, it's masks, it's social distancing, it's hand hygiene, it's ventilation and all those things together. And if you're in a situation where you cannot use one of them, then masks are more important, right? Like in a school, you want kids to be masked because they might be close together. Right. But your question before about is there scientific evidence for masks? There is, despite all the randos on the internet who are, who tell you and on Twitter that say that there isn't. Hey, come on. Some of those randos might listen to this podcast. Don't turn away our randos. Sorry, randos. So, <laughs> Sorry, randos. There's examples from Canada, Germany, and the U.S. For example, in the U.S., they compared states that had mandatory masking laws and those who didn't, and there was decreased rates of COVID. So we know that it prevents transmission. Just a couple of reminders. Don't use those masks with a little vent in them. Those are venting out the COVID virus particles. So don't do that. And we, there's also the okay. question about glasses and goggles, right? There are some studies that suggest people who wear glasses have a decreased risk of COVID because again, the virus can enter through your eye. And at my work, it's mandatory when you're seeing patients to wear eye goggles as well. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, there was an economic argument that said that 
if everybody had just worn masks in the US from the beginning, that would have allowed things to stay open. You wouldn't have had as many lockdowns and it could have added a trillion dollars to the US GDP. This is from an article in PNAS in January 2021, which is a medical journal. And they kind of cover all the evidence regarding masks at the time. Oh yeah, PNAS. PNAS is telling us what to do. Yeah, I've been trying to wear my uh, swim goggles covered by my ski goggles. Is that a good? I haven't been doing that. But listen, on a related note to doubling up, enter stage left. These variants have come in. Right. UK variants, I'm going to say, because I like to stick it to the UK. The UK variants have come in and now they're talking about double masking and they're not even 100% sure about that. Like it, it just, it's starting to remind me of like Gillette and the blades on the <laughs> razors uh, now with seven masks. So do we know enough about these variants yet to know how we can protect ourselves from them? Right. So, I mean, the variants are a big issue. What's the concern with the variants? And this is what's going on. And on a later episode, perhaps we can talk about it. But right now, the world is having a competition, right? It's the competition between how quickly you can vaccinate people and how quickly these variants are spreading. And even countries that it changes every day, countries that seem to have gotten things under control by vaccinating a lot, even still, we're seeing hospitalizations and case rates go up because the variant spread. The UK variant, the B117 variant, is about 50% more transmissible and may have an increased mortality rate up to 65% or so. So more transmissible and perhaps a higher mortality rate. So definitely that's why people are concerned. One option is to wear these N95 masks, which you've talked about, because they filter things that are about 0.1 to 0.3 microns and are about 95% effective in preventing, you know, transmission of COVID. But N95 masks, they're hard to get. They're very uncomfortable to wear, as everybody who works in healthcare knows. And you actually have to do a special fitting for your mask. I have a beard right now. Listeners can't see it, but I have a beard right now. But when I'm on call for the hospital, I actually shave down to a goatee because the mask has to fit exactly around your face. Beard or stubble will prevent it from fitting exactly. And then you have to do this test where you put the mask on and then you put a hood on. Like you look like you're wearing a hazmat suit and they pump mm. in this substance, which is like a noxious smelling and tasting substance. And if it seeps through the mask, you will taste it and smell it and you will like gag because it's disgusting. And they'll say, oh, sorry, your mask doesn't fit. Try this one. Try a different one. Oh, what a test. That's how extreme it is. So you cannot do that with the average person. And that's going to cause a lot of false um, reassurance. If you buy an N95 mask and aren't wearing it properly, or you have a beard, maybe your son, you know, the six-year-old who's developing the mustache, if he gets a beard, he can't wear that N95 mask. That was a joke. Okay, good. Also, I have a letter here from a listener saying that 1995 called and they want that goatee of yours back. Just a little helpful thing from a, a listener. Okay, that's kind of cruel. But I guess it didn't really answer your original question. Maybe that's why you're getting so upset. <laughs> the multiple layers of fabric is because we know that the tighter the weave, the more layers you have, the more you're acting like an N95 mask. So a lot of the recommendations are now surgical masks, like a, a medical one. We have enough supply now. It's less worrisome. And on top of that, maybe a cloth mask. Because what we try to do is emulate an N95 mask because we need to try and prevent the spread of these variants. You don't want to spread it and you definitely don't want to get it because of these issues of higher mortality. So hopefully that answers that question. It does. I got two more questions about masks specifically, which one is about kids, you know, wearing masks in school. 
it's a brand new world. And I don't know if there's research about it, but I wanted to ask you, are there social implications of this, of kids not being able to read facial expressions? You know, I was thinking about like when my sons who are in French, you know, how do you listen to a teacher go, oreille, you know, the word for ear in French without seeing their face. It's a crazy word. It would just sound like a, a muffled mess underneath a mask. Now, obviously that's not true and they've still been learning okay, but it did make me think, are there implications for both learning and social life with these masks? This is a definitely a concern that's come up through pediatricians and developmental psychologists. There's a great article in the New York Times by Dr. Perry Class, K-L-A-S-S. And Basically, they found that when well, they looked at some of the old research, they know that at eight months of age, babies switch their attention when someone's speaking. At eight months of age and prior, they're looking at their eyes. Then they switch and look at their mouth. And that's a few months after eight months is when kids will start to speak, around a year or so. So that's probably how the language occurs in kids and how they develop what we call expressive language. And we know at four or five years of age, kids perceive faces as what we call holistic objects. So they don't look at the eyes and the mouth and the nose. They look at all as one. It's one object, which is a human face. And then the third thing is, we also know that kids have difficulty recognizing emotions without seeing a whole face. That's all in the previous psychology literature. We know that. And that's at what age? So we're talking about the preschool type of age. for that. Okay. And so- a lot of these concerns have been brought up. What does it all mean and what can we do, right? So the truth is we don't know. We don't know what this year of masking is going to, what the long-term effects will be, if any. But let's keep in mind a couple of things. We know that kids' brains are adaptable and what we call plastic. We talk about that in neurology a lot, right? They're constantly developing and wiring. So can they just kind of overcome this, whatever problems the masking might cause? And what can we do? We can use our body language and intonations. You know, we, we use facial expressions to communicate as much, but we don't use it as much. And I still think you can tell, right? When you see somebody, for me, it's at work. For you, it's maybe at the grocery store or something like that. And they're smiling at you. I have work. Don't dismiss the work that I do. I use quotation marks, but you can't tell it's a podcast. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. when, when, when you're at work in quotation marks, or you're at the grocery store, when someone smiles at you, you still know they're smiling, right? Their eyes smize. kind of, yeah, smize. smize as they say, their eyes kind of crinkle at the sides and you, and you kind of know that. So it's doing more of that, doing more of your body language to help kids understand, okay, I'm upset, I'm happy, I'm sad, and let them know that. And I think kindergarten teachers have already been kind of working on this and you'll see a lot of articles about what teachers can be doing, especially for these young kids. But let's also take a step back. We know that in Asian countries, mask use has been prevalent even before all this stuff. It wouldn't be uncommon if you're visiting Japan or you're on an international flight to see someone perhaps from an Asian country wearing a mask. It's pretty typical there. And there's no evidence there that children in one of these Asian countries cannot read emotions or cannot see the human face as a whole. And that's also probably because people don't wear masks 24 hours a day. They wear them when they're out. And at home, these children, even when people are masked, at home, they just see their parents and their siblings without masks. And they're still able to develop these skills at the time. So I think it's worth monitoring. But And God knows that on our trips to India and Pakistan, we could have really benefited from wearing masks as well. Huh? <laughs> it's foggy. It's not foggy. It's pollution. It's been polluted for the last three weeks that I've been here. Anyway. That's an interesting thing about the mask, because I do wonder about this. This is my final question, which is, 
the conventional wisdom is that we should be exposed to some bacteria, right? We should get used to some sort of germ so our body learns how to fight it. Now, when I go to the CBC, a place of work, a building, and I only go once a month or so, as soon as I enter that building, I feel a little, <clears throat> because I have what I consider a domesticated cat syndrome, right? I don't leave the house much. And now as soon as I go into a building, I, I'm like, oh my God, my throat's like, what is that? What is that? Is that dust? Oh. <laughs> and it's, it's starting to freak me out a little bit that I'm not going to be used to like fumes and dust and dirt and all the stuff that I've been around my entire life. Is there a risk with masking and that kind of thing? And and should we, in fact, be masking long after this vaccine comes out? I don't think that there's a really substantiated risk with masking and, and not getting infections. I think you have just have to ask any pediatrician what they've seen, usually ear infections, right? Constantly. I'm sure your kids have had ear infections mm -hmm. in the past. A lot of pediatricians will say they've seen one or two in the past year, one or two ear infections in their entire practice. It's insane. The flu, mm. right? We talked about, oh, the flu is such a, a big deal. Get your flu shot every year, get your flu shot every year. Cases of the flu are almost non-existent. We've had All a right. few at our hospital, but very minimal. And again, so what we're doing is that's useful. Kids aren't missing school. They're not getting sick. They're not getting chronic ear infections and causing hearing loss. And preventing the flu from being spread, especially in the elderly who we've focused so much on in the pandemic and trying to, to help them and prevent infection in them, not getting the flu. Again, for us, we just get a cold. It could be life-threatening in an older person or an immunocompromised person. So I think we've done a lot of good with hand hygiene and with masking. What does the future hold? I don't know. And I should say now, I should probably should have said this at the beginning, I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. What, what the hell are we talking to you for? <laughs> and I, I've been wrong. You know, people at this time last year, when are we going to have a vaccine? And I said, I don't know, maybe 2023. I was completely 100% wrong. So I don't know the answer. If I had to take a guess, an educated guess, I don't think masking will be gone from our society. And I had a hard time with that. I wasn't sure about masks even a year ago. I was like, I don't know, it's so different. And people don't like that. They don't like the change. They don't like something that's different. They don't, nobody likes the phrase, the new normal. Nobody likes that. But I would have a hard time seeing in certain circumstances. So plane travel, uh, large groups, or when you see an increase in cases of whatever it is, influenza, COVID again, if we have to get boosters and things like that. I think there may be these times that things ebb and flow and we'll be seeing masks. Certainly, I think at the very least, there will be a certain population in every country of people, just like in Asian countries, they're like, I'm going out, I'm wearing a mask, I don't care. Mm. Or when people are sick, as you know, handshaking is done. I'm not sure it's going to come back. But going to work when you're sick, which I think we have all done at some point, that is done. You cannot go to work when you're sick. Again, another topic for another another time is the people who can't afford to not go to work and making sure those people are provided with benefits to stay at home when they're sick. But that's probably a discussion for another time. But So I think masks are here for the next little while. So all those anti-maskers on social media, sorry. Buckle in, buckle in, folks. My biggest challenge is the fact that as a comedian on a show with like seven other comedians, we all share the same mic. So we're going to have to get some technology around that. Either place are going to have to invest in seven microphones, which some places have, or um, like wipes in between. And mm -hmm.
So that's our show for today. Before we go, Ali, anything for you to plug? I got a book coming out. Mm-hmm. Anybody who listens, <laughs> don't roll your eyes at it my book. Wasn't my eyes. <laughs> October 5th in the fall is their bacon in heaven comes out. So that's good. A lot of other various things, hosting and being part of over the next few months, standupali.com is where you can find all of that. Asif, what do you got to say? Huh? What do you got to talk about? I just need to ask people to subscribe yes. to our podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a five-star rating and review. It would really help us out. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Dr. V Comedian. All right. Good stuff. We'll see you again soon, everybody. Bye.